people need good leaders. They need good leadership. And uh, that as we look around, there is indeed a shortage of leaders today. Uh, there's a scarcity of what I would call diligent leadership. Diligent leadership. Diligent leadership in the home. Uh, witnessed by so many homes and families falling apart for one reason or another. I think largely because of lack of leadership. There's a lack or scarcity of diligent leadership not only in the home, but in the business arena in the political arena, in the workplace, in our schools, and also, tragically, in the church. And, unfortunately, in many cases, qualifications for leadership have been reduced, uh, have been diluted, so that today anybody could be a leader based on simply the amount of money they have, or their popularity. And uh, I think most of us would agree that for the great mass of people, just in the political arena, it's a popularity contest. And people really don't look to uh, issues of character. And uh, that's that's something that's imperative. And for Christians, uh, you and I, certainly, as called to be leaders, every one of us are called to be leader. Do you know that? And uh, sometimes we stereotype leadership. We say, well, that, that, that person's the leader. Well, in one sense, yes, but all of us are called to be leaders. All of us are called to take the lead in those arenas in our life where God has planted us, more particularly as ministers of the gospel. That we're to take the lead in sharing with other people. We're to take the lead in ministering. We're to take the lead where we see a need that we would not just hang back, but we would take the lead. We are fundamentally all, as ministers of Jesus Christ, to be uh, taking the lead. And our character determines uh, what we will do, in fact, if we will do that. It all comes down to character. Good leadership is critical. It's a critical need in the church, amongst God's people, for God's people, And this is the reason that God has established a very high standard for leaders in the church. Now, when we do a leadership uh, event or we nominate our church council, and once a year you know that we go through the uh, process of nomination and ratification, and I'll take you to 1 Timothy or Titus, and we go through those particular qualifications for overseer, And again, the the challenge is not just to look at those qualifications just for those people, but to really see all of those qualifications applying to every single one of us across the board. And the very first one, you recall, is uh, the person must be above reproach. And I I believe, and I think you'd agree, that every Christian should be a person who lives their life above reproach. Is that a fair assumption? And so then all the fall, all the, uh, the, the qualifications and characteristics that follow that really come under that one umbrella of being above reproach. But in order to be a person above reproach, there are some other characteristics, other qualities, if you will, um, other dynamics that have to be in place. And let me suggest to you, one, a person has to be called by God, don't they? Called by God, forgiven by God, consecrated by God, prepared by God, and dedicated to God. Are those imperatives? And they really do apply, and we'll see as we go through chapter 29, they apply to the priesthood, and and you'll see every one of those dynamics in this consecration of the priests, but they also are characteristics, they're also dynamics that apply to the life of every Christian, or certainly they ought to. We are called by God. We are forgiven by God. There is a certain sacrifice that allows for that. Uh, We are indeed dedicated to God or prepared by God and so forth. So uh, it's imperative that we see these things. And we learn from them. Now, Sometimes when we, when we read the Old Testament and we just, we just read and 
And we may not stop to think to ask some questions. This question occurred to me. Why the priesthood? Why is there a priesthood? Why did God even institute the priesthood to begin with? And as I thought about it, I reread some of the earlier chapters of Exodus in chapter 19, verse 6. I discovered again that God's original intention, apparently, was that uh, his people be a kingdom of priests. That's the, that's the statement, that's, the, that's God's word in chapter 19, verse 6. With both the nation and each individual dealing directly with God. So it's, it's God's intention uh, that the people could deal directly with God. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Apparently that was God's original intention. However, the people's sin prevented this from happening. Sin is a barrier, isn't it? Sin always gets in the way of a relationship. A sinful person is not worthy to approach a perfect, holy God. It's that simple. So while God wanted his people to come directly to him, sin gets in the way. Hence, there has to be a means, there has to be a way whereby now uh, God's people could experience his grace. So then he appoints the priests. The priests are from the tribe of Levi. Okay, they're the only tribe whereby the priests could come. When the Israelites will enter the promised land and Moses will apportion the land to all the various tribes, the Levites get no land because they're to be supported by the nation as a whole. They're the priestly tribe, starting with Aaron here and his sons. So also God not only set up the priesthood, but he set up also a system of sacrifices to provide a way for the people to approach him. Now, this is necessary. This is absolutely vital. God promised to forgive the people's sins if they would offer certain sacrifices, and those sacrifices would have to be administered by the priests on behalf of the people. Through the priesthood and through the sacrifices, God was also doing another great work. The priesthood and the sacrifices were not in and of themselves, essential just for that time and those people, but they actually pointed to another reality. How many can think what that reality is? Jesus Christ, that's right. The priesthood and the sacrifices in in God uh, instituting these was also preparing all people for the eventuality of the coming of Jesus. They would point to him. The writer of the Hebrews talks about the sacrifices having to be offered again and again and again. And the priest would die off and another priest had to be appointed. So there was this, this ongoing system. It was an imperfect system. But it would point to the fulfillment one day of one final high priest and one final sacrifice whereby all people could be forgiven. So God is doing a great work through the priesthood and the sacrifices in instituting them. And again, you can, if you, if you care to, uh, go ahead and just go back and reread Hebrews chapter 10, and you get tremendous, tremendous insights into uh, this. So now as we approach chapter 29, uh, the, the instructions for the tabernacle and all of the furnishings of the tabernacle uh, is nearly complete. The priestly garments have been ordered, Right? And now we come to the dedication of the priests. So nearly everything is in place. And now comes the instructions for the consecration, the dedication of the priests. It's time for Aaron and his sons to be publicly ordained, publicly installed as the official priests for Israel, who would act as the intermediaries between the people and God. The people cannot approach God because of sin. So they need an intermediary. Now, you and I, on the surface of it, might think that unreasonable. Well, you know, God's being unreasonable. Why can't we just approach him? Why can't he just wink at our sin? Because he is absolutely perfect and holy and just and righteous, and he cannot. His nature will not allow him to do so. He has to deal with sin. He loves us. He wants us in a relationship with him. So he, he, he creates a way whereby that can happen. And in this case, it's the high priest. In our case, it is Jesus. Somebody say hallelujah. 
Look at verse 29. God says to Moses, now this is what you are to do to consecrate them. That word consecrate is a very powerful word in the text. It means literally to sanctify or to set apart Aaron and his sons to God and for this priestly work. They're not to do anything else except be the mediators between man and God. They are to service God. They're to offer the sacrifices on behalf of man. They're to be consecrated to that point, and it is to be a public affair. They're to be, it's to be, to be conducted in a public service. The attention of the people was to be focused on the fact that these are the men who will be the priests. These are the men who will be the ministers of God among them. Now, again, to reiterate, all of us are called to be priests. I come from a tradition originally, Catholicism, where uh, the the Catholic Church picked up this, this Old Testament model and appoints priests. That's clearly not the biblical model in the New Testament for the church. And there are other traditions that do the same thing. This is where we, 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 we see people set apart. All of us are gifted for some function in the body, and all of us are called to be priests, to minister to God and to people. Okay? You, you cannot ever, ever lose sight of that reality. So now in this public ceremony, God instructs Moses uh, to collect some items, secure some items necessary for this ceremony. First, uh, a bull, and indeed there are going to be seven of them because this, the bull is going to be sacri- there's a, a sacrificial bull every seven day or for seven days, and then two rams uh, without defect. Now it, the symbolism again it is clear. Uh, these are fulfilled in Christ. He is the perfect sinless Lamb of God. Moses is also to uh, have bread, cakes, and wafers made out of wheat flour, with oil, and without, what? Without yeast. Yeast, of course, represents evil. It represents sin. The priests were going to eat the bread. The bread was for the priests, the wafers and cakes and so forth, for their sustenance. The picture of not having any yeast in them was simply that the priests were to partake of righteousness, not evil. So everything they were to do. There's symbolism all over the place here. Verse 3, Moses is to present these items to the Lord. And then in verse 4, God calls for a public ritual bath, bathing or washing or cleansing of Aaron and his sons before the tabernacle. And this is, again, important. This washing with water before the tabernacle would symbolize the removal. Again, symbolize. It doesn't actually remove their uncleanness resulting from sin, but it symbolized the removal of uncleanness resulting from sin. But that washing also would point to another washing, the washing of rebirth or the washing of what we call regeneration theologically. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Paul speaks of the washing of rebirth, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent of our new birth. Jesus says you must be born of water and the Spirit in John chapter 3. So the Holy Spirit is the agent of this miraculous transformation that occurs uh, in our life. We become, we were one person and now we're a brand new person. In Acts chapter 22 verse 16, Paul recounting his testimony says that Ananias, you remember when he was uh, blinded by the Lord on, in, on the Damascus Road and so forth? In recounting that testimony, he said that when he, when he went to Ananias, Ananias told him, get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Now, water baptism doesn't wash away our sins, but it is representative, it is symbolic of the washing away of our sins that God does in our regeneration. Our water baptism, among other things, is a public testimony, isn't it? See, this ritual washing of the priest was a public testimony. It was a public experience. And our water baptism is a public testimony of a number of things. One, our identification with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
Uh, most of you are aware that when we baptize here, we baptize by immersion. So we take you down under the water. The temptation is to hold you there for a long time. <laughs> we want to make sure it sticks. No, we take you down under the water. That's a picture of dying and being buried with Christ. Bring you back up out of the water. Picture of being raised to new life as a believer now, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, as a born-again person. But that baptism, water baptism, uh, symbolizes not only the death of the old person, the, the old you dying with Christ, new you rising up, but it also is a picture of the washing away of our sins. Now, baptism doesn't wash it away, but it's a picture of what happens when I die and I'm reborn, my sins are forgiven. They are washed away. And so we see this ritual washing of the priests uh, symbolizes the very kind of same kinds of things. And there's a point, it points to our baptism and our spiritual regeneration. Next, there was the putting on of the priestly garments on Aaron, verses 5 and 6. The garments were made out of linen. Linen represents righteousness. So as the priest, as Aaron would put on the garments, uh, it symbolized being clothed in righteousness. The priest was to be clothed in righteousness. Now you and I are priests. We should be clothed in what? Righteousness. That's right. You notice in the New Testament, the New Testament talks about the the Christian putting on things, uh, clothing him or herself in certain things. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul writes this, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I am one with Christ. I am united with him. I am bonded with him inseparably. And because that's true, I ought to evidence, if you will, Christ in my life. That's what it means to clothe yourself with Christ. Be consciously aware of that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, in other words, give evidence of the fact that you are a new creation, a new person. Let that happen. Let that be visible. Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, again, that, that expression, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, And then in verse 14, and over all these virtues, put on what? Put on love. So all of these these virtues really do point to Jesus. They are all expressive of Jesus. And uh, so Paul is saying the same thing three different ways. How is a believer to be clothed? Obviously, ultimately, in righteousness. Symbolized by the priest putting on the garments. You and I don't put on physical garments in the sense... Of, of, uh, of, of that, but it's, it, these are spiritual garments. We array ourselves uh, because God has arrayed us that, thusly. Now, in verse 7 comes an anointing. So there's a number of events here. The anointing symbolized being anointed with the Spirit of God and with power. If you'll notice in verse 7, Uh, The writer says, take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Is that not graphic? Now, we anoint one another. We pray for one another. We anoint you with oil. Take you in the prayer room, anoint you with oil. We just put a little dab of oil on your forehead, maybe, or maybe on the the limb that's involved and so forth. They took the oil and they poured it on you. Doesn't that sound exciting? Now, you have to envision this. Here here are these, these, these priests, no doubt, with beards and, and long hair and so forth, and, and, uh, and they're taking this anointing oil, which was a mixture of, of ingredients. It was a very sacred oil. And they would just pour it over them, and this oil would just drip all the way down them, down their clothes and everything. Lovely picture, isn't it? But what is the picture? It pictures the Holy Spirit just, just, in, in, uh, uh, and just in, in great abundance and in, 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 in fullness, just pouring over a person's life, taking full control of that person's life and power. It's a marvelous picture. Now, we don't do that, obviously. We don't pour oil on your head. Um, We just dab you. But nonetheless, the reality is is no one can serve God truly without his anointing, without his power. Isn't that true? 
To do God's things, God's way, you've got to have God's anointing and his power. It's that simple. Now, we're very, very capable. We can do lots of things. You don't have to be a a believer to be really, really accomplished in a lot of things. But to provide spiritual fruit and to do spiritual works, you must have God's anointing, his power, and his spirit in order to do those things. And so this anointing uh, pictures that. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, we're told God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, reminiscent of the anointing of the priests. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He said, well, Jesus was God. Yes, but remember, though he was God in the flesh, he had divested himself of all of his godly prerogatives and powers And he, too, was dependent on the Holy Spirit, filling him, anointing him, empowering him, as you and I. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit. And it's not just to be filled one time. The idea is that we are continuously being filled. So there's this... The Holy Spirit is continually anointing, continually empowering, continually filling us. And if you go from verse 18 of chapter 5 of Ephesians and you read the balance of the book on into chapter 6 and through chapter 6, you see, uh, one, this whole arena of relationships, ministry, and spiritual warfare, uh, which can only be engaged if we are filled with the Spirit. There's no way else it can be done. So verse 18 of chapter 5 in Ephesians is a critical verse, pointing us again to the anointing, to the filling of the Holy Spirit, to be able to do that which God has called us to do and to that which God has called us to be. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, again, speaks of the anointing. John says, we have an anointing from the Holy One. And that anointing, again, is by the Spirit of God. That anointing is to serve, that anointing is to know the truth, that anointing is to minister to God and to his people. Now, verses 8 and 9, we see the call and the ordination of the priesthood are to be permanent. Notice with me, please. Verse 9, put the headbands on them, then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. So the, the Levites were to be the priests... Permanent priesthood. No one else could be priest. But there's another dynamic, another feature to that uh, permanence. The priest was forever responsible to serve God faithfully. So not only did he inherit a permanent priesthood, a permanent office, if you will, but he was also responsible to serve God faithfully. That's another feature of this permanence idea. And I think there's two good lessons that can be seen in the permanence of God's call here. One, we are responsible to serve God faithfully. Is that true? We're responsible to serve God faithfully. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 19. It's the parable of the ten minas. A mina was a, was a measure of money. And uh, Jesus t- told of a certain man who entrusted ten of his servants, each with one mina, And uh, he said to them, put this money to work until I come back. Implicit in that is what? It's faithfulness. Take this which I've entrusted to you and use it faithfully until I come back. Now the priests were to minister faithfully to God on behalf of the people. You and I have a ministry, each one, uh, where we are to be faithful question is, what's the ministry God has called you to? Wherein, wherein you're going to be faithful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove what? Faithful. Faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the very last verse, verse 58, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
I know that what God has called me to do, I know the ministry is entrusted to me, and what I do is not in vain. Sometimes it seems like it's in vain, huh? Have you ever been tempted to to just kind of give up and quit because your prayers aren't being answered apparently, or apparently there's no fruit, or apparently it doesn't seem to be working, and and, and whatever you're engaged in, and you think, what's the use? I'm I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to give up. He says what? He says you have to, by faith, Hold on to the reality that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Stand firm. Don't let anything or anyone move you from that position. Because you know God's at work. Sometimes we get so focused on the results because the results are in whose hands? They're in God's hands. We look at the results and sometimes the results can be meager in our eyes and we get discouraged and so we want to give up. Don't do that. See, it's talking about what? He's talking about being faithful. Be faithful. Just be faithful. Um, Jesus, when he tells the parable of the uh, talents, and uh, the, he comes back, the master comes back, and the servants report in, and the first two servants, the, the, they, they have a, a, a return on the investment, if you will. And, and the master says to them, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, he doesn't say successful. Faithful. You were faithful with a little, you can be trusted with more. So the priesthood, it was a permanent priesthood, and the permanence really was an accent on their faithful service, their faithful ministry. Second lesson, I think, again, is that all believers are made priests of God. And again, our priesthood is a permanent priesthood. It's a permanent priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter writes, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our sacrifices are not animal sacrifices. They're not material sacrifices as the old priesthood. Our sacrifices are spiritual sacrifices. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Christ has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. So again, reiteration of the fact that believers, true believers, are priests in the fullest sense of that word, ministering to God, serving God. We move on now to verses 10 through 14, and now we see the the instructions about the sacrifices themselves. The bull, from verse 1, is to be sacrificed as a sin offering for Aaron and his sons. When we get into the book of Leviticus, we're going to look in detail at all the various offerings, and there are a number of them. But this particular one is a sin offering. The bull is going to be offered for the sins of Aaron and his sons. No person can serve God until he's cleansed and forgiven by God. The call is there. There must also be forgiveness. And the forgiveness happens when sin is paid for. And so now this is going to be the case with this bull. Moses was to have Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the bull's head. This again, this act symbolized identification. That the animal was taking Aaron's place and the animal was becoming the sin bearer. The death of the animal is accepted as the equivalent of the death of the individual. Now, the laying on of the hands on the head of the bull didn't actually transfer the sins of Aaron onto the animal. It just symbolized that the animal would die in his place. With Christ, our sins were laid on him, literally. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. This is so important to to understand. It wasn't that Jesus just took a beating for us, kind of just stood in for us and took a beating. No, no. He became sin. Our iniquity was laid on him. He became a sinful party. Otherwise, justice would not be served. Is justice served if, 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 you're, if you're sentenced to die for some heinous crime 
and uh, you kind of get off because someone says, well, I'll die in your place. Is justice really served there? No, just, just a death doesn't do it. The guilty party must pay the price. Jesus, in fact, becomes the guilty party and pays the price and satisfies God's demand for justice for our sin. That's the only basis upon which you and I are free. The animal, the bull, was to bear the judgment of God against sin. And this act of identification would again point to Jesus as the sin bearer of the world. Isaiah 53, 6 puts it very succinctly. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Now Moses was to slaughter the bull before the people, and this was indeed an act of appeasement. God's wrath towards sin can only be appeased by a sacrifice, and it had to be a blood sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. It requires a life be given. That's why the blood, because the life is in the blood. You follow? So God's wrath towards sin must be appeased, must be satisfied. Again, you and I, when we see uh, somebody get off who is guilty as can be, get off on a technicality, we say justice has not been served. Isn't that true? Now, you could say... Technically, there's a law, there's a loophole in the law, there's a weakness of the law that allows for this to happen. But in reality, we're enraged. We're not excited and joyful that this person got off. Uh, Witness uh, this event that's happened, I guess, this last week where uh, this man who has repeatedly raped a little girl, I guess, and uh, was in Vermont, and a judge who's been a judge for years and years and years just decided unilaterally, arbitrarily, punishment doesn't work, so he gave him 60 days in jail. And as I understand it, there are tons of people who are really enraged at this. There's something in our sensibilities that say, what justice has not been served. And so this bull would indeed, according to God's agenda and according to God's economy of things, this bull would indeed... Um, giving its life, would appease temporarily God's wrath towards sin for Aaron and his sons. Jesus offered himself as the only sacrifice that could ever totally, truly, effectively satisfy God's eternal judgment and wrath against sin. Otherwise, there had to be continual sacrifice, continual sacrifices. But Jesus is the one final sacrifice for sin that totally, totally ends and appeases God's judgment. Romans chapter 5. Marvelous, marvelous passage in Romans 5. And I just want to read these verses to you about Christ's death. Verse uh, 6, Paul says, You see, at just the right time, isn't that great? Just at the right time, God's timing is always right on. Though sometimes we think he's not going to get there in time or he's going to be late. No, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His sacrifice was for the ungodly. It was for sinners. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, we have now been justified by his blood. In the Greek, that's in the perfect tense, meaning it's done, it's finished. We have now, once and for all, been justified. I can exhale. There's no doubt. There's no worry. Am I still justified? We have now been justified, perfect tense. Not imperfect tense. Do I still need to be justified? No, no. You have been justified. How? 
by his blood. Just like the blood of the animal. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath towards, uh, through him? For if when we were God's enemies, ungodly, sinners, enemies, if when we were his enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When God saved me, he saved me at my very worst. I was not only ungodly, I was not only a sinner, I was his enemy. Christ died for me. That is worth praising him about. I was his enemy. At my very worst, he saves me. Isn't that glorious? So what implication is there now for me today? If I sin today, does he kick me out of the family? Does he kick me out of the, out of the house? No. He saved me when I was at my very worst. I didn't save myself. He saved me. Christ died for me. He keeps me today. Presumably, I'm better today than I was back then. Even though I still fall short. So, isn't that great? The sacrifice has appeased God's judgment against and his wrath against sin. The one final sacrifice in Christ. That is absolutely glorious. Now Moses takes the blood of this sacrifice bull and he's going to apply it to the altar, to the horns of the altar, to the base of the altar, to sanctify the altar. Because the altar, too, is sinful. Blood sanctifies. Blood cleanses. Blood, in effect, makes up for the sinfulness, if you will. And the worship center had to be sanctified as well as the worshiper. It's the blood of Jesus that sanctifies or sets apart believers as holy. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, speaks of the blood of the covenant that sanctified the believer. It's always the blood. You cannot get to God without the blood of a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was the animals. New Testament, it is the blood of Jesus, once and for all, permanently. And then he takes uh, the fat and the choice parts of the bull and burns them on the altar. This was a special offering, the burnt offering to God. It was to be a pleasing aroma. And you know, when you drive by uh, Burger King or you b- drive by In-N-Out or, and you smell the fat burning, you just, boy, that just smells so good, doesn't it? We understand that, but how much more this... The, and it's not just the smell that's pleasing to God. It's, it's the fact that these are the choice parts that are offered to him which is, becomes a pleasing aroma. So he's, and then he's to take the, the flesh and the skin and the waste, and uh, these are symbolic of being permeated with sin. These are not to be burned on the altar offered to God. These are taken outside the camp and burned outside the camp. Again, a marvelous picture. Jesus is the sin offering. Where is he killed? outside Jerusalem, outside the city. So again, there's a, there's a picture here in the Old Testament. Uh, these are not the choice parts that are burned outside the city. These are burned on the altar. Jesus is not killed in the temple. He's not sacrificed in the temple, as were the sacrificial lambs. His blood wasn't shed in the temple on the altar there. It was outside the city. Why? Because his whole body, if you will, became sin for us. All of our sins were laid on him. Hebrews 13:12 Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And then you go to verses 15 through 18 the first of the two rams is offered sacrificed. The first ram symbolizes total dedication to the Lord. God seeks for people who really are willing to give all they are and all they have to him. Is that a fair statement? 
God seeks for people. Uh, you see, in the, when we get to the comparison between Saul and David later on uh, in the book of Samuel, uh, David served, the, the quote is, David served the Lord with a whole heart. Saul served the Lord half-heartedly. What a, what a dramatic comparison. God wants people who are ready and willing to serve him with all they are. Love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, he's not looking for people who want to do their own thing or go their own way. He wants us to be people who serve him with our whole heart. The idea here is total dedication. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, there's this marvelous verse. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Isn't that a marvelous picture? It's as if God is looking throughout the whole earth for those whose hearts are totally dedicated to him so he can strengthen them. Wow, what a marvelous picture. And we do. We ask God for strength, don't we? And implicit in that request for strength, you were saying, Lord, strengthen me. I'm committed. I'm committed to you. Strengthen me for this work. Strengthen me for this situation. We must dedicate our entire being to him. Now, we would agree with that statement, right? But do we? Do we do it? Do we actually, do we actually dedicate our entire being to him? No, we always, we have the best intentions. My mother used to tell me that the road of life is littered with good intentions. I have the best intentions. I'm going to serve you. You get up in the morning and say, Okay, God, you and me today. Here we go. And then half hour into the day, we forget. Is anybody like me? Did you do that? I'm not the only one. No. We, we must dedicate ourselves, our entire being, to the Lord. And this is what Jesus says. This is a challenge to us. There aren't just words. We read the words and we say, yeah, I agree with that, but... We must persevere in this. We must persevere. Listen to what he says. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He must say no to himself, his own appetites, his own desires, uh, his own pride. How many are aware that they're prideful? How many would admit to that? Yeah, all of us. I mean, just, just, isn't it marvelous when God arranges so that someone comes into your life and just pushes that pride button? Don't you just love it when that happens? You go, tighten my jaw. Right? But I think we'd all agree, we, we need to have that button pushed. We need to see it because we can go quite happily along not addressing it. I need to deny myself. Oh, gag, I need to deny myself again. I need to say no to myself. The point is, it, it, dedication. Here's a stronger word from Jesus. Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Whoa. Well, that would disqualify just about all of us, wouldn't it? But I think therein is a challenge to us. Here's the ideal. We press on to the ideal. We press on. We say, you know what? I, I'm, Lord, I know. I, I want this. I want to be a person who can and will, in fact, give up everything for you. But God, I need you to work in me, to continue to transform me, change me, so that I become that person. But I have to be a willing partner to that, I believe. Does that make sense? Rather than just throwing my hands up and saying, that's impossible, I could never do that, therefore I'm not even going to try. No. Stay in the process. And, and, and we see that in, in every aspect of our life and all the roles we play. If, if you're going to be a husband, and maybe you're not the best husband, maybe you're an insensitive husband, maybe you are an unloving husband, but, but down deep inside you know you need to be a loving husband, and this is what God calls you to be. So you say, Lord, help me to be a loving husband. Lord, help me. I'm going to, I'm going to press on to be or a submissive wife. Lord, I want to be a gentle, 
quiet, spirited, submissive wife. I want to be an encouragement to my husband. I want to, 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 to uh, show him respect. And those are things that you typically do not do. But you know these are the goals. This is, the, this is where God is taking you. This is his ideal for you. And so you press on persevering and, and praying and asking God to continue to make these things real in your life. Does that make sense? Romans 12.1. Uh, Paul says, in view of God's what? In view of God's mercy. Has God been merciful to us? Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to submit to you that you have to keep in the forefront of your thinking his mercy to you. God, you've been merciful to me. You've been merciful to me. And because we keep in the forefront of our thinking his mercy, then and only then will we be sufficiently motivated to offer our body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, which is our spiritual act of worship. But if, I, if his mercy is not in the forefront of my thinking, if I'm not acknowledging what he's done for me, this act of, of, of total dedication will never really come about in my life. Because I'm not seeking it. Wholehearted dedication. This, this is what constitutes a pleasing aroma to God. Wholehearted dedication. I want my life pleasing to God. Wholehearted dedication. Now the second uh, lamb sacrificed was to symbolize consecration to service. What was the first sacrificial lamb for? Total dedication. The second ram symbolized dedication or consecration to service. This time, the blood of the second lamb was uh, used to anoint the priest. And notice the anointing. Some of the blood was put on the lobe of the right ear. Some of the blood was put on the right thumb. And some of the blood was put on the right big toe. Isn't that cool? Now, what does that talk to? What does that speak to? Well, the lobe of the right ear would, would, would symbolize... Um, a setting the ear apart to listen, to hear God, to hear the needs of the people. The anointing of the right thumb symbolizes setting apart of the hand to touch and do only righteous things. The anointing of the big toe of the right foot Symbolized setting it apart to walk in the ways of the Lord. So the symbolism is just, is, is just tremendous here. In the ancient Near East, to lose your thumbs and or your big toes uh, was symbolic of being useless or impotent. And indeed, in many of those cultures where you would be uh, overrun and captured by another tribe, very often the men of the tribe would be rendered useless or impotent by the cutting off of their thumbs and their toes. And that would disable them terrifically. But it was, a, it was not only a physical problem, but it was symbolic of these other issues. And so thereby to dedicate, if you will, uh, our, your, the person's ear, uh, thumb, big toe, if you will, by the anointing, to dedicate these to God was really a symbolic of dedicating one's entire strength to his service. Our ears are to be sanctified, aren't they? Our ears are to be guarded. Do you guard what enters your ear gate? Or are you in, indiscriminate? Anything just comes in. You just allow anything to enter in. Um, I think we, we guard the, the, the speech, the stuff people say to us. We, you, know, you don't have to participate in gossip, right? You don't have to participate when people are telling off-colored stories and jokes. You guard your ear gate. Sanctify your ear. You don't want your thinking to be defiled by what enters your ear gate. And constantly, we want to be constantly listening to God, listening for God, and listening to the cries and needs of people. Our fingers, our hands must be used for that which is good. 
and our feet are to walk in the ways of God, walking after the Spirit, walking in the light, as the New Testament says. So again, the, the anointing of the priests speaks of the anointing of us as priests also in the same manner. Now, some of the blood and the anointing oil also were to be sprinkled on the priests and on their clothes. This is instructive. It sounds a bit strange. You would think, why would God have his priests dressed in such splendid, beautiful clothing only to ruin that clothing by throwing blood and oil on it? Doesn't make sense, does it? Well, remember what this second sacrificial ram symbolized. What did the second ram symbolize? Consecration to service. That's right. So God's people are called not only uh, to offer the sacrifice, but they're, they're, our task is not an easy task. We're to be, we are to be living sacrifices, aren't we? When you minister to people and minister in people's lives, it can get messy, can't it? It is not always easy. There have been times when I've been tempted not to answer the phone. Right? Because you know, you, just, you answer that phone, you take that call, man, it's going to open up a whole Pandora's box. I'm going to be immersed. This is going to be messy. It's going to take time. I'm tired. I don't want to deal with it. But I've been consecrated to service. huh? We as priests have been consecrated to service. Christ, that sacrificial lamb, his blood anointed us. We're consecrated to service. And the service is not easy. It's hard. We, we're not in a, if you will, if I can use this expression, we're not in a product-oriented business, are we? We're in a people business. And people are difficult. Don't you just wish everybody in your life would just do what they're supposed to do? <laughs> would just behave, be nice. You know, it just, you just never know. You just never know who is going to erupt. You never know who's going to go off the track. You never know who's going to just fall prey to some false doctrine. And you have to be involved. You don't know who's going to need discipline, instruction, encouragement. It's not an easy work that we do that we're consecrated to. We expect to do these things without getting dirty. We expect to do these things without problems and suffering and trials, not at all. We are consecrated to service. We're going to get splashed on. Our clothes are going to get dirty. Make sense? The blood and the oil address the very purpose for the priests. To serve God, to serve his people. No matter how terrible the suffering or difficult the problem. That was... Symbolic symbolism of the blood and oil. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says this, that he came not to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many. We know that verse, but that reality has to echo with us and echo with us and echo with us. We came to serve, not to be served. We are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, we are to serve one another in love. That's the best kind of service, isn't it? In love. Well, I'm going to serve you. I don't like it, but I'm going to serve you because I love you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Next are the two wave offerings, verses 22 through 28. The wave offerings symbolize the commitment to give God the best. Moses was first to cut away the fat and the choice parts from this ram. He was to take uh, one of the loaves of bread and cake and wafer from that basket. Then he was to put these all into the hands of the priests, and the priests were to lift them up. And the priests were to wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. And this wave offering was an open show of thanksgiving. How do you suppose the wave offering went? How do you you suppose it looked like? How How did they wave these things? Anybody? Have any idea? 
How do we typically think they would wave? Like this, huh? Yeah. It actually wasn't from side to side. It was front to back. The wave was front to back. The idea being, again, offering it to God, receiving it back. Offering to God, receiving it back. So we offer our lives to God, right, in thanksgiving, and we receive back life from him. So the wave offering was actually front to back. It wasn't from side to side. And it was an expression, an open show of thanksgiving. And then Moses was also to burn the item, these items on the altar after this wave offering as a burnt offering, again, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which would symbolize this, the pleasure and the acceptance of God. So this, these items, these choice parts, the very best, were waved to the Lord, and then they were burned on the altar, and that would be a pleasing fragrance and aroma to God. The second wave offering, Moses was to take the breast and shoulder of the ram and lift it and wave it before the Lord. And this would be the food for the priests. So it would be waved to the Lord before the Lord. Again, expression of thanksgiving. Received back. And then that would become the fellowship meal for the priests. Note that only the choice parts were offered to God. Important. Only the very best should ever be offered to God. Would you agree? How many of you have ever read the first chapter of the book of Malachi? God castigates the Israelites and the priests because they don't offer him the very best. They offer him the lame, the diseased, the sick. And then he says, would you offer these things to your governor? Would your governor accept these? And yet you offer them to me? amongst other things that people are all under a curse for, what is the very best that you can give to God? What is the very best you can give to God? Think about that. What's the very best you can give to God? I want to tell you, there's four things that are pleasing to Him. Four things that we can give to Him. These are the four things that please Him the most. You ready? Number one, our bodies. Our bodies. Offer your body a living sacrifice. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that we've been bought with a price, we don't belong to ourselves. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now when he talks about your body, it's not only just a a, a direct uh, um, statement about our physical body, but also everything that our body represents and how we use this body in all these life arenas. So everything that I am, honor God. If I'm a student, honor God. Do my studies as unto the Lord. If I'm an employer, I'm going to be an employer as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. If I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a spouse, I'm a parent, I want to be one as unto God. I want God honored I want him to have the very best, and I want to do use this body to literally provide the very best I can. Secondly, God is pleased when we obey him. When we simply do what he says. How many parents do we have? Are you more pleased when your children obey you or disobey you? Yeah, it's pleasing. You want your, Come on, kids, just obey me, right? Do what I say. Now, well, we, we tell them to do things. It's not arbitrary. We know what's best. At least we think we know what's best. Our kids think, right? And so we say, do thus and such. And and we're pleased when our kids obey us. God is our Father. He's pleased when we obey Him. 1 Samuel 15, 22. It is better, to obey is better than sacrifice. Now this obedience is not a legalistic prescription. I have to obey. No, it's simply, literally walking after God following God, walking in his steps, walking uh, with him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, uh, who, who is it that's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Only he who does the will of my Father. Peter says in Acts chapter 5, verse 21, we must obey God rather than men. So God is pleased when we are faithful to him. That's our third one. God is pleased when we are faithful to him. Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You can picture the master, when the servant has been faithful, well then, come enjoy your master's rest. He's pleased that we have been faithful. So he's pleased first with our bodies and how we offer our bodies to him as living sacrifice. He's pleased with our obedience. He's pleased with our faithfulness. And fourthly, God is pleased when we do good and share with those in need. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And then as we begin to wind the chapter up in verses 29 through 37, we find the rules governing the passing down of the ordination garments to whoever would follow Aaron as high priest. We read that the ordination ceremony would last for seven days, and so each day there would be these sacrifices. Verse 35, uh, God says, Do just as I have instructed. Again, obedience to this process as God has designed it uh, is emphasized. The full consecration of the altar required the sacrifice of a bull for seven days running, and after the seven days of consecration, we're told that the altar itself would be most holy, which meant that whatever touched it would likewise be made holy. So God is covering every possible detail in this uh, system of ordination. Then we final, the final charge here we find in verses 38 through 46. The final charge contains the daily offerings, the morning and the evening sacrifices. The priests were to offer two one-year-old male lambs, each without defect, each day, one in the morning and one in the evening. And these offerings, they were not to replace the others, they were in addition to uh, all the others. The morning and the evening sacrifices. Think about that. The morning and evening sacrifices set the tone for the worship of God's people. How so? God's people were to worship morning until night, all day, every day. Worship him with our whole life, right? All day. So the morning and evening sacrifices set the tone for that. It's kind of like you hem in your day with prayer. You start the day, you end the day. That's a regular spiritual habit. And hopefully that will ensure that you do that throughout the day also. Psalm 113, verse 3. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So all day, all day. And the the two sacrifices, morning and evening, would picture that. We, We sacrifice our life all day, every day. And what a joy it is when you, when you begin your day, just wake up, say, God, God, good morning. Just good morning. Just acknowledge him. Chances are, if you begin your day acknowledging him, you'll acknowledge him throughout the day. And then when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you say, God, good night. Thank you for a day. Thank you for my breath today. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for getting me through the day. So again, uh, these morning and evening sacrifices. Now, God tells his people in the last several verses, if they were faithful in keeping these daily sacrifices, he would do a number of things. In other words, if you worship me, you can count on this. Number one, verse 42, he would meet and speak with Moses, and he would guide and give Moses instruction. Verse 42. Verse 43, God would meet and speak to the people. The people would hear his voice. Verse 44, the Lord would sanctify the tabernacle with his glory. In other words, the very presence of God would fill the tabernacle. Again, verse 44, the Lord would set apart the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, all to his service. They would all be holy. Verse 45, he would dwell among his people and be their God. And lastly, verse 46, the people would know that the Lord is the God who delivers them and sets them free. He is their Savior. He is the one who gives them life. God's action, you recall, in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt showed his great desire to be with them and to protect them. In fact, he told them that. And only God, only God can set a person free 
from their personal Egypt. Only God can set a person free from the bondage of sin and slavery, slavery to those personal sinful habits even. Only God can set people free. You cannot do it yourself. And God does this through the ministry of the one high priest, Jesus Christ, who offered himself as the one and only sufficient sacrifice for sin. The one high priest, the one sacrifice. And when you truly surrender to Jesus, God's Spirit not only frees you, but God's Spirit comes to dwell in you and to seal you for that day of total redemption for an eternity with God. When that happens, you are born again. You are born again. You are a new creation. Not just converted, but regenerated. Truly a new creation. To live a new life of fellowship with God, bearing fruit to God, as now a called, forgiven, redeemed, dedicated, consecrated, sanctified priest to God. It's all because of what he does. He's called us to be priests, not just a few, not just a few, every single one of us. We need to take the lead. We need to persevere. We need to acknowledge and recognize what God has done and what he has called us to. That's what's laid out for us. But, beloved, we will not do that if we don't first keep in mind, keep in view his mercy to us. That's what it's about. Lord, you have been merciful to me. I could never thank you enough. I could never serve you enough. You have me, all of me. The challenge for us is to persevere there. Not to quit. When you fall short, just get back up and get back on the bike. Get back on the bike, right? I failed. I didn't do it right. I missed. But Lord, I'm going to persevere with you. You've anointed me. You've called me. You've forgiven me. You've consecrated me. I'm dedicated to you. No matter what happens, I'm not giving up. Amen? Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. We love you this morning. Thank you for the example and the lessons we learned from the priests, the priesthood, the sacrifices. Lord, that you've called us as priests. And Lord, we, each one of us has a ministry, multiple ministries, in fact. And Lord, we don't do these in our own strength, but by your spirit. We have an anointing that comes from you. Not from the world, not from secular culture, not from our education, but a spiritual anointing from you to be and to do and to act as you called us. God, what a privilege, what an honor to minister to you, to serve you, and to do your will in this life. Again, Father, we look to you. We say strengthen us, encourage us, keep us mindful of these things, and most particularly of your mercy towards us. We love you today. We commit ourselves again, and we do so in Jesus' name.